Since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May of 2020, many governments, commissions, and organizations have come out with plans to change police departments. What does this look like when the leaders of a reform effort are African-American, when they're from law enforcement, and they're female? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your all-around justice nerd and geek, and your personal guide to every bit of the criminal legal sphere. And, since you asked, still somehow hanging on to that incredible, wonderful day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, when George Floyd died under the knee of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin at the end of May 2020, and the video of Mr. Floyd's last minutes of life circulated across the country and around the world, The reaction was immediate, it was loud, and it was large. Protests erupted almost everywhere in the United States, from the largest cities to the smallest towns. And of course, this was not limited to the U.S. Protests of police conduct began to occur in countries across the globe. And this did not let up for months In the aftermath of the first wave of protests, sometimes while the protests occurred or even were still growing, many organizations and individuals and some city officials demanded immediate action and changes, big cuts in police department budgets, a reordering of police department priorities, even, as in Minneapolis itself, an abolition or defunding of police departments. Now, some of these actions became law and policy before the summer was over. Large reductions in police department budgets occurred in Boston and Los Angeles and some other places. Changes in the law governing policing in New York State and the District of Columbia went on the books. Other governments began hearings and set up commissions and task forces to determine what needed to change for police departments to behave better, differently, and responsibly. As listeners know, I was a part of one of those efforts myself, serving on the Mayor's Community Task Force on Police Reform in Pittsburgh, where I live. Here's Mayor Bill Peduto of Pittsburgh, speaking about the task force just after forming it. This audio is from CBS News. With so many voices that are out there right now that are demanding change, we wanted to pull together the entire Pittsburgh community. And without elected officials and without any government staff, allow them to hear the voices as well and to make recommendations back to us what reform should look like. The leadership of these efforts was not always African-American. Our task force in Pittsburgh was led by two prominent African-American people, but this wasn't true everywhere. And these groups were usually not led by law enforcement leaders and professionals. Those were two things that made the reform effort that came out of John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York and the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, known as NOBLE, that made that effort different. John Jay College, part of the City University of New York system, has long been a leader in education for criminal justice professionals. Its graduates populate the ranks of not just the NYPD, but of organizations and agencies across the entire legal system and across the country. Noble, an organization founded in 1976, and again, that's National Organization for Black Law Enforcement Executives, formed by and for African-American leaders in police agencies, police chiefs, high-ranking officers, and others who wanted to meet the challenges of leading in law enforcement with the perspective that comes from also being African-American. As it happened, In 2020, the leaders of both John Jay and Noble also brought another perspective, 
they were female in fields largely dominated by white men. The leaders combined the strength and perspectives of their organizations and their own lives, and the result is a document that sees the current challenges of race and law enforcement in ways that many organizations just don't or can't. On this episode, we'll discuss this effort, the report it produced, and what to expect going forward with one of the leaders who saw the deep need for change and pushed forward. Carol V. Mason is the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. An attorney, Ms. Mason, began her career at one of the premier law firms in the U.S., that's Alston and Byrd, and she eventually became the first African-American woman elected as chair of the management committee of any major national law firm. Ms. Mason moved to the U.S. Department of Justice during the Obama administration, where she served as Deputy Associate Attorney General from 2009 to 2012, and then in 2013, she became Assistant Attorney General heading up the department's Office of Justice Programs, or as we call it, OJP. In that position, Ms. Mason oversaw the National Institute of Justice and the Bureau of Justice Statistics, among other key programs, all part of a $4 billion budget. Among the programs that blossomed under her were the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice, a pilot program in six cities, including Pittsburgh, which built out training capabilities in procedural justice, implicit bias, and racial reconciliation. As president of John Jay, Ms. Mason has become one of the leading voices for equality, fairness, and criminal justice reform in the country. During 2020, Ms. Mason and John Jay partnered with the National Organization for Black Law Enforcement Executives and its immediate past president, Chief C.J. Davis of Durham, North Carolina, to produce a joint report, Future of Public Safety, in December of 2020. The report, based on the recommendations of an incredibly impressive and diverse array of experts from community advocacy, local government, law enforcement, and the academic world, lays out a comprehensive roadmap for real public safety. We'll put a link to it up on our website for you. President Carol Mason, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you very much for having me, David. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, me too. Now, Carol, you're a person of significant accomplishments, uh, an attorney uh, at one of the top law firms in the country, high official in the Department of Justice. Uh, You're also an African-American woman, and you're co-leader of this project that was uh, Chief C.J. Davis of Durham, North Carolina, their police department there, uh, and the immediate past president of Noble, Uh, She is also a respected African-American leader. And it's very striking, I think, uh, that the two of you come together, uh, leading John Jay and Noble, uh, to create this coalition of voices right now in the aftermath of the terrible killing of George Floyd. What motivated you personally, and if you can speak for Chief Davis, uh, her to take this on? And why did Noble seem like the right partner for you and John Jay? Well, thank you for that question and give me the opportunity to talk about a project that's near and dear to my heart. The origin of this, as you mentioned, was the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice. And we launched that program at the Department of Justice um, in the wake of Michael Brown, but the work for it actually began after Trayvon Martin. And when we launched it, our goal was to make sure we never had a situation like Michael Brown again. And as you mentioned, Pittsburgh was one of our pilot sites, but Minneapolis was also one of our pilot sites. That's right. So in the summer of 2020, when when George Floyd was killed so horribly in front of all of us, um, it was a gut-wrenching Um, experience for me because we had spent millions of dollars, as you know, and years in these communities focused on racial reconciliation, procedural justice, and implicit bias. And to see what happened with George Floyd happen on camera um, caused me to think that I had failed in what I set out to do with the National Initiative. Then after uh, a lot of soul searching and, and 
talking with David Kennedy and John Jay, who ran that project, and re-examining what to do um, and listening to the national conversation, I said, as a Black woman who is president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which was founded as a police college in the 60s at a similar time of social upheaval, I thought, if I can't help the country figure out how do we move forward, then I'm not doing my job. Right. So I set out thinking about how to change the national conversation around, stop thinking about funding or defunding the police or abolishing the police, and take the conversation back to what does public safety look like? What does a safe community look like and how do we get there? And thankfully, Noble, in the form of C.J. Davis, approached me with an opportunity. They had a funder, Estee Lauder, who was interested in supporting their work. And because of the great relationship I have with, with Noble dating from my days at, at DOJ and now at John Jay, they came to me and said, how can we partner together? And so I showed, I told them about this vision, this idea of having this kind of national conversation focused around public safety with all these different voices so that we could reach some consensus and help guide the country through a different way of talking about these issues. So that's how we came together. And, and it is beautiful that it was two black women um, yes. with law enforcement um, history who, who decided to lead this because I thought these are voices people might listen to. Yes. And I wanted to, to call attention to that very thing. I mean, we don't always hear about African-Americans getting to lead efforts like this in every city. We don't always hear about whether law enforcement is at the reform table or not. Uh, and we don't always hear that these things are led by women as opposed to men. All three of those came together in this particular partnership. Did that give you uh, a different set of perspectives, you and Chief Davis, and a different set of goals? Absolutely. And I also thought it gave us a, a different level of credibility because we come from a law enforcement background. We are Black. We are women. We are, And so, so I think that, that we understand um, that, that Black women are the mothers of our communities. Um, and, and, and so we bring that kind of empathy and perspective as well. And, and I think that, again, it was a, a situation where I thought if we get people talking about the right thing, which is what does community safety look like? What does public safety look like? With all the, the diverse voices and the focus is on how we move forward. So we were very intentional when we selected people to be part of the conversation, intentional in the sense of we wanted all these different perspectives, unions, political leaders, community activists, philanthropic, business community, all represented. But whenever we invited people to the conversation, we said, we want you to be thinking, how do we move forward? Where are there opportunities for consensus rather than focusing on what's wrong? And that is a different perspective in both ways. The forward looking, how do we get better um, and the voices that aren't always heard together. Um, and I think that makes this particular report a unique contribution. What, as you started, uh, what were your goals? What was the ultimate aim? You, were, you wanted to have this conversation, but did you have a particular set of goals in mind or were you content to allow the group to sort of organically come up with what those should be? Well, the goal I had and the belief I had was that when you put all of these different perspectives together, that we could find common ground. I remember talking with one of my team members at John Jay who worried, what if we don't find consensus? And I had every faith that we would find consensus if you've got people together talking about the issue the, the, the right way and not focused on their own self-interest, but thinking about Again, what does public safety look like instead of the, the dichotomy as uh, us versus them, thinking about the holistic um, enterprise. And, and, and I use the phrase future public safety, but I will say that in the series of conversations I've had since the release of the report, um, I, I have a phrase that I like better. San Jose is using the phrase talking about community safety. Ah. And, and I think that that I think words matter, framing matters. And I think that that by them thinking about it in terms of the community safety that means the community is owning what does safety look like and that's that's our goal yeah i, I i've seen similar uh, uh phraseology used in newark their organization there 
I can't recall all of what the letters mean. Newark Coalition for Safety, NCST, NSCT, uh, but their phrase is community public safety, community-based public safety. And it really tells you where it all comes from. Um, so the way you approached this was with these six public conversations uh, across difference, dialogues across difference. And um, I've been involved in some things like that here in Pittsburgh and in some other places. This isn't always an easy thing to do, um, uh, but it gives you an opportunity to get very different voices at the table than the sort of usual suspects who are going to tell you this is how we do it because we know the answers. Uh, so as you set out, to have these six conversations, um, how did you pick who, what, and why? I mean, I sort of the subject, the people. How did how did you decide to frame those things? Well, it's um, it, it was an iterative process. We talked and talked, and so um, I engaged an outside firm, the Rabin Group, um, to help do a lot of the logistical work for us. And so we had calls with our team, meaning John Jay people, people from Noble and the Rabin group um, multiple times a week thinking about, you know, and they kept pushing me about what's the outcome looks look like? What is it you want to see at the end of the day? And then kind of backed into the voices that we needed at the table. But I knew we needed union voices. I knew we needed line police voices. I knew we needed political leadership. Um, as we talked about it more and, and who we wanted at the table, we ended up carving out one session just for public health because we realized there was so much there. We didn't want to give it a uh, short trip. We wanted it to have its own focus. So we had one panel solely composed of public health experts talking about this. And so, so that's how we backed into it. You know, the themes were um, defining public safety and, and it was a, we laid it out in a sequential order intentionally. We started talking about how do you define public safety? Uh, what does pu public safety look like beyond the police station? Again, so that we can get people to understand that police don't own public safety. We as a community do. Then we had the public health seminar, uh, excuse me, session. Then we had talking about investments because there's this language about abolish and divesting. The question is, how are we going to invest in public safety? And then we talked about um, and throughout the theme, throughout the underlying theme throughout all of this is as we talk about this, then what is the role of policing? When we understand that the community owns public safety, not police, what's the role of policing? So we ended with a, a session talking about recruiting skills and training. So that that was the, the framework so that we could get to consensus around uh, some of these themes by the end of the conversations. Wow. Okay. So you're going to cover a lot of ground. You have a lot to, uh, to discuss and you're taking it from an unconventional point of view, community ownership of public safety. You're including things that a lot of people don't think of in, in policing or public safety, things like public health. And all of this is brought together in these conversations. And from reading the report, it seems like that you came out with nine very strong points of consensus. Nine is, I mean, that is pretty good. Uh, and a lot of them, I think, uh, reflect many of the elements of the conversation uh, that you had. So uh, what were those nine points of consensus? And, and, and I will say that when we reached nine, I was ecstatic. Uh, <laughs> I was going to be happy with a few, but the fact that we identified nine um, said, said a lot about the quality of the conversations that people were willing to have on a tough issue. So the first thing that, that everybody said across all of the conversations is that we all want the same thing. We want to be safe, and, and, and as Daryl Atkinson said more eloquently than I could, he's, when people talk about what does that look like, he said it's what white and suburban communities enjoy every single day. Mm -hmm. The kind of community we all want to live in, one that's safe and we have an opportunity to thrive. Um, the second point of consensus is that beyond the police, other institutions and public servants must play a role in delivering public safety and services. And, and that's, again, the ownership of police aren't the only people who can help create the safety we need in, in our communities. The third point of consensus is healthy communities are safer communities. 
and that public resources must be invested in the areas that are most likely to create healthy communities. And one of our public health ex experts said, um, healthy communities are safe communities and communities that are not healthy can't be safe. Uh -huh. um, and it's a, it's a different way of really thinking about what it is we're trying to do. Um, the fourth point of consensus is that community voices, particularly those of young people, need to be included and respected in the process of defining public safety. And, and more than just providing lip service, really having the, giving them a meaningful role in contributing to defining what public safety is. And, and, and I just, if I wanna, if I can digress for a moment before I go to the other five points. One of the things we did after we identified the points of consensus is had four focus groups. Um, mm -hmm. Different groups, I thought, I wanted to test out the theories without people having a camera on them. So we had a group of young people, young advocates and young people who were gonna go into policing, some students from John Jay, some noble um, student chapter members who were young people in college who wanna be police officers and a lot of young people from the community. We had a My Brother's Keeper chapter from Baltimore and we had some violence interrupters from another community. And it was interesting that all of the young people, those who intended to go into policing and those who were in the community interrupting violence, we they agreed on things. They all had the same perspective, which again, validated the perspective of, of how we approach this. They all wanted to recognize the importance of them being part of the solution. Yeah, because the old saying is, right, if, you're, if uh, what you do for me without me, you're doing to me or variations on that theme. Uh, so I can see why they would want that. I think maybe instead of marching forward into the last five, let's just take those four first and give me some idea of where you came out, where the group came out, what it was looking for, what the, what it, what its main recommendations were on those first few. I, I think that the main big aha moment for me, because if you'll notice, if people pull up the report, I gave an introduction at the beginning and a conclusion at the end, and I was not part of the conversation intentionally. I was listening, carefully taking notes. And one of the biggest um, defining moments for me was when the public health folks said, this is going to take a long time beyond political cycles to achieve this. And getting people to understand that they've got to be committed to this for the long haul and not while it's, um, the popular thing to focus on that this is long right. hard work and you've got to stay at the table and that's the other challenge when you talk about involving voices um you can't you, you can get angry at what somebody may say about you you can be hurt but don't leave the room don't leave the conversation stay in it and and i think that's the the one of the challenges is to create the space where people can have these conver meaningful conversations. That is, that is such, I, I apologize for interrupting, but I just really want to amplify that. That is so important. Uh, we had our moments here in Pittsburgh this summer. We, uh, the mayor created a mayoral task force on community police reform, and I was a member of it. And we had some really great uh, uh, younger members of Pittsburgh's African-American community, uh, some non-traditional leaders, and uh, not enough was done to keep them in the conversation. They very quickly sort of lost interest or they just decided to go another way. And I, I don't find fault with any particular person or entity for that, but I do know that our work was less rich because they weren't there. And it's going to be hard and you've got to be creative about how to keep those voices engaged in the conversation in a everybody's voice in a constructive way. So um, at the back of our report, we give a roadmap for how people can engage in these issues. Data is important. And I think data is critical to, to use it to drive the work so that you can assess what you're doing and see if it's meaningful. Um, but you've got to look at systemic change. And I think that that we'll get to this later and we talk about recruiting and training, but I think that engaging the community in how you train officers um, can create a new paradigm about how officers interact with the community. I think giving the community an opportunity on a regular, consistent, sustained basis to provide input on what's happening with um, 
not just policing, but all the service providers in the community help give you information and data to determine, are we doing the right things? Um, is this is this happening the way we'd like to? How does the community see us? I know you're from Pittsburgh and I know that you know that we did the um, implicit bias training and, and you all asked us to come in and not just chain, train the uh, sworn officers and folks in the department, but also to, to work with the community. Yes, it was and very was successful novel. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and by the end of that process, the community and police were training others together. Please excuse my interruption. No, no, that's you. You went through it. That's you know. To me, those are key things. There's no magic formula. I think you've got to look at your community and 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 engage with them and find out what they want. I do think it's important to go to where they are as opposed to asking them to come to you. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't do that, you'll never get them. Uh, let's take a quick break here. We're with Carol Mason. Uh, she's the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. And she was also one of the co-leaders of a remarkable report called uh, The Future of Public Safety. Uh, it was done in partnership with Noble, the National Organization for Black Law Enforcement Executives. Why don't you stay with us? We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. It's Criminal Injustice, and our guest is Carol Mason. She's president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City, and along with partners in the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, she was one of the driving forces behind a great report called The Future of Public Safety, published by John Jay and Noble in December 2020. Of course, we have a link to it up on our website, and we encourage you to go ahead and read it. But let's pick up our conversation here. Uh, Carol, you were telling us about the various uh, uh, points of consensus we were uh, hashing through how important it is to keep all the voices engaged, keep them at the table, that this is a long-term sort of commitment. Talk some about the findings and consensus, excuse me, around community partnerships for safety, because I think people maybe haven't heard of what that is and why it's so important. Well, I think that that um, there are many, many examples. And then at the back of the report, we talk about some at John Jay, we have an initiative called the National Network for Safe Communities, and it involves all um, partners in the community to help um, deliver public safety, because that's what we're talking about is how to create public safety. And I think there are models such as is involving young people who have been criminally justice involved in interrupting the cycle of violence. Um, it means making sure that we focus on and thinking about how do we address uh, the trauma that, that many young people in our community have experienced by witnessing violence or being victims of violence themselves and what role others in the community can play in addressing that trauma, recognizing it and interrupting it. It, it, it means um, working with your political officials and representatives to make sure that there are alternatives to um, calling 911 when, when um, someone has experienced a crisis Chief Daniel Officer, Commissioner Daniel Officer from um, Philadelphia. It's not Daniel. Can I break? Yeah, you can. Her name is Daniel Outlaw. Yeah, I was going to say, but Daniel Officer. <laughs> you were close. John Jay. No, there's a Daniel Officer at John Jay. That's why I did that. All right, I'll start over. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was go like, ahead. That's not her name. Um, Commissioner Daniel Outlaw from Philadelphia made an observation that that resonates with everyone. I think it's that we end up criminalizing encounters that should not be criminal encounters because the only place we have to call is the police. Amen. So if somebody's having a mental health crisis, the only place they have in many communities to call is 911. When there's a homelessness issue, when you know there are all these things that are really social issues that should not be require a criminal response. So I think we've got to look at communities and figure out how do we form other community responses to these issues. They're wonderful nonprofits, grassroots, not grassroots nonprofits in communities that ought to be engaged. One of our other panelists in the opening session talked about that we always focus on the big nonprofits instead of looking in our own backyards. 
for the people on the ground who know the communities and are doing that great work. Um, but, but that to me is what community response and community ownership of public safety looks like. That, that is so well said. Um, and it reflects what I was thinking about before with community-based public safety. There are organizations that can help and do things like this. And just for too long, when the topic public, sa- public safety would get mentioned, people just automatically think police. And the world is, must be, has to be bigger than that when we talk about public safety. There have to be other responses, and the more out of the community, the better. You spoke a minute ago about training that would involve civilians. I am very intrigued by that idea and have looked for ways and examples that that could be done. What, what, was, the, uh, what was the sort of consensus set of ideas there? Well, I think that, that um, the consensus view was that we need to Um, have police officers, law enforcement officers view themselves as guardians of the community, which is not a new concept as opposed to warriors, but language matters. So we've got to stop using terminology like war on crime, war on drugs, because that creates a certain um, outlook as you approach the work versus um, approaching the work as you are the community, uh, you're part of the community and you're working to create this safer Um, environment. One of the things I've been, um, since George Floyd happened, I have said yes to any conversation anyone asked me to have about this issue, and it predated our report. And I was in a conversation um, in Minneapolis earlier uh, in the summer of of 2020, and one of the community members there talked about that they, the community, created a profile of what characteristics they wanted to see in the law enforcement officers in their community. That's revolutionary to ask the community to define what what do we wanna see in the officers who are gonna police our community and giving them that kind of voice and thinking about what are the skill sets and characteristics they want. Um, the, the other thing that we talk about is that it's, it's, it's not about training because training, it's about educating, attracting the right people to the profession and equipping them to do their jobs um, the way we'd like them to do it. And, I, and, and it doesn't stop with when they come in through the academy, it's gotta be throughout their training. And I will say that I'm a proponent of changing the language of how we bring in police, new police officers and stop using militaristic kind of language um, they're not going through boot camp. Um, you know what we want them to do is is develop a set of critical problem solving skills, social skills, the ability to really um, support the success of their communities, and when necessary to protect it. Absolutely. You know that idea of recruiting based on character and character traits that the community identifies. That idea was born in the Twin Cities area. I wrote a a chapter about that in a book that I published in 2005 called Good Cops. And, uh, you know, when you start thinking of things that way, asking people what kind of character traits or skills do we want, we, the community, want officers to have, boy, you can make a difference and all right. So, uh, you know, you might think I don't really want somebody who's most suitable for confrontation. I want somebody who's more suitable for communication. I want those skills. I want somebody who will get out of a patrol car and go speak with a group of young men hanging on a corner, not somebody whose first idea is to go arrest them. So uh, I applaud that idea. I just really think that that kind of community involvement in training uh, that and and, and training that uh, um, goes beyond just the academy is really key. Uh, What was the approach in the report uh, to the issue of transparency? I know that came up, too. Data. Data is critical. And in the roadmap we give in the back, we give some suggestions about the kind of data that that the that this community group ought to collect, ought to ask to be provided and have on a regular basis. So it's, it's, it's not, it's about budgets, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, uh, and I do believe in the concept that, that Nick Turner at Vera uses uh, budget justice, 
but it's also looking at the data of what your 911 calls are about, seeing who's making them, where they're going, why they're, so you can look at it and see what services are really needed to Mm -hmm. address the issues. If you see that you've got a lot of calls about mental health issues, then you know you need to shore up your mental health services so that they, that people aren't winding up in crisis. And my view is we don't want to just deal with giving people an alternative to addressing the crisis. We want to prevent the crisis. We all know that we need to be investing in, in mental health preventatively. We need to be investing in education, jobs, quality housing, food, um, all the things that create a healthy community, but look at what, what the calls are telling you are happening in your community so that you know where you need to shore up the social ser- social services safety net. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, often the, the related concept that goes with transparency uh, is accountability. How did you approach that? Um, we are still approaching it. I, I'm working with the National League of Cities. They just announced a couple of weeks ago their new initiative, their task force to reimagine public safety. And one of the conversations that I'm going to be leading for them is about accountability. And I had a long conversation this morning with um, one of the deputy commissioners at NYPD about what accountability looks like for them. And, and it's about, again, providing data about officers who have had misconduct um, challenges, making that available and accessible. I think that, that, that the more um, transparent people are, the better. We all know that that body cameras are part of being transparent, but only if they're used properly. Absolutely. If they used properly, I know that when I was at DOJ, the money for the body camera programs came um, from the Office of Justice programs. And one of the things that we made clear to people is you can't just have the body cameras. You've got to have a real program and rigorous program about how you're going to use the data from it, not just for accountability, but for, tr- for training and education purposes too. So somebody needs to be regularly looking at the film to see we, what the encounters are looking like, whether there are opportunities to improve how you're preparing your officers, whether there are issues where you could um, spot that there's some challenges particular officers are having before it becomes a problem. Um, I know one police commissioner who I won't name who said that after the fact, they looked at some films about some officers and they said, if we'd only looked at this earlier, we would have seen a problem. They don't, it doesn't show up on paper. The credentials look good. But when you start watching the film and seeing the interactions, you see that there's a problem that you could have avoided or realized this person wasn't suited for the job. So I think that you've that that it's about being transparent, but also using the data and information that's already available um, to help improve not just uh, the officer experience and the community experience, but to help prepare people and equip people who are in law enforcement do to do a better job. Yeah. So I know one thing that's on a lot of people's minds right now, we are speaking uh, about two months and a little bit more after the uh, terrible events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And there were police officers there. Some of them have even been charged and arrested since. Um, And I think people are a little surprised in some quarters that there were police officers there, that there were police officers expressing some of the points of view they have. But, you know, honestly, this has been a kind of open secret for some time. Um, There have been uh, projects that have traced police officers' social media use and found lots of evidence of racist language, of disrespectful treatment, uh, um, speaking of disrespectful treatment of citizens and so forth. And I guess I just want to ask, what do you think is the right way to try to get a hold on that problem? Because we know police officers, of course, they have free speech rights. They are citizens, but they also hold a kind of a sacred trust. How do you approach that particular problem? as a leader. So what's interesting, our eighth point of consensus says society must address how police departments think about and address issues of race, race, racial animus, and implicit bias. Neither police leadership nor community members should have any tolerance for law enforcement officers with a history of 
or tie to racism and injustice. And so I think that, you know, it was interesting. We got consensus on that. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and, I, and I had law enforcement on board too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the, the challenge is, is that most officers want to do the right thing and do do the right thing. Um, and, and people use the phrase, there's one bad apple. But I had a law enforcement chief I was in conversation with say, this is a profession where we can't afford to have any bad apples. Uh-huh. Just like you don't want a pilot, you can you don't want to have a pilot and say, oh, that's just one bad pilot. Well, no, you don't need that. that that's Risk is too high. Exactly. And the institution's too important. Um, and so you've got to figure out how do you make sure that your your um, your profession reflects the trust the community has given you to not just protect them, but you you have power, you have power over life and death. And you need to make sure that the people who wear that have the privilege, because that's what it is, the privilege of wearing that badge and having that power reflect the values of not just the community, but this country, which says that we're all supposed to be respected and have an opportunity to succeed. And so I think the question is, how do we track that information in a way that is um, transparent, but also fair. And, you know, people talk about the cancel culture. So I think that we have to have um, an opportunity to explore um, when, when, because of this age of social media, people said something 20, 30 years ago when they were a teenager in their 20s, do we hold them accountable for that same language in their 50s? I don't have the answer to that, but I do think that we need to give people an opportunity to grow mm-hmm. um, and, and develop. But if they are actively members of a white supremacist group, it's a challenge to believe that they can fairly police communities of color. Yes. Thus the zero tolerance idea for actions and beliefs in the present. Right. Yeah. So with the report out now, yeah, and and you very wisely said early on in our talk today that this looks like a decades, years long effort. This is only the start of the effort, not the end. Um, what will you, as the leader of John Jay, a leading institution in educating people in law enforcement and in other positions like that, what will you be doing uh, in the months and years ahead to make the vision in this report a reality? So I will tell you not only what I will be doing, but what I am currently doing. Okay. Uh, the The report is just step one. It it is identifying where there can where there is consensus, and helping people see a path forward. Um, I often say this work is not proprietary to John Jay, nor is it proprietary to your podcast or any. It is work that we all own, and we all need to do collaboratively. So my perspective is is that. There, the, we know what we need to do. The question is whether we've got the courage um, and the commitment to do it. And so, I am part continuing to partner with organizations that we do great that do great work and have done great work. The Vera Institute, um, the Cities United, um, the National League of Cities, the, the, my brother's keeper, uh, the mayors who've taken the pledge to reimagine policing. We actually launched the report. Uh, with the mayor's group who've taken the pledge to reimagine policing. And so the, the, my work, as far as I'm concerned, is continuing to elevate this work, um, be a partner with those doing it. I had a conversation just three weeks ago with many people in, who were part of this report and the organizations I just mentioned to talk about how do we support each other in this work. So we don't, I know that Vera is doing fabulous work in certain communities to address these issues. Cities United is doing fabulous working work in various communities, including Minneapolis. And so the, the, what we're doing is supporting each other, making sure people see that there is a path forward, because that's, that's, the, that's the challenge is showing people, this is how you can do it. This is how you can have these conversations. And I'm open and available to talk to anybody who wants to talk. 
That's Carol Mason. She's president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, and along with partners at the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, uh, she and they produced a landmark report, The Future of Public Safety. It was published in December of 2020. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Carol Mason, thanks for being my guest. Thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to uh, share this this wonderful report with your audience. And now let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Law 360, the Daily Local News, and the ABA Journal News Online. This is lawyer Joshua Janis, formerly of Downingtown, Pennsylvania. The trouble started for lawyer Janice with an ethics investigation more than five years ago. Back in 2013 and 2014, lawyer Janice was an associate at another lawyer's firm. We won't use that lawyer's name because, well, he wasn't behaving badly. We'll just call him Law Firm Partner. In a series of meetings and reviews, the law firm partner noticed something odd about how lawyer Janice was handling clients, the fees the clients paid to the firm, you know, things like that. During a private meeting with the law firm partner, lawyer Janice admitted that he was, quote, messing up at work. What's that mean? Is messing up some kind of technical legal term? Lawyer Janice admitted that when he handled the firm's clients, he was sometimes taking the fees they paid the firm, which should have gone into the firm's client trust account in the bank, and keeping them for himself. We do have fancy legal terms for this in the law, such as conversion of assets. But you might know it better as stealing. Lawyer Janice admitted all of this and agreed to repay the money he had taken. But then, well, I'm sure you would have guessed, there was more fraud and theft discovered and even committed after the Come to Jesus meeting with the partner. Law firm partner had, of course, had it, and Janice resigned from the firm, no doubt one step ahead of being canned. Law firm partner then filed a complaint with the Pennsylvania Bar, which, in its investigation, found even more behaving badly, lying to clients, taking money from them he wasn't entitled to, and lying to judges. Ooh, yes, messing up indeed. By the time the case made its way through the disciplinary system in Pennsylvania, lawyer Janice had seen the light and was prepared to admit his wrongdoing. Or maybe it's more likely that he was caught so red-handed that there was nothing he could possibly say in his own defense. Whichever it was, he agreed to a five-year suspension of his license to practice. However, that wasn't the end of the matter because all this resolved was his professional misconduct. And as bad as this was, some of that professional misconduct went beyond merely behaving outside legal rules. Remember that stealing? So those allegations were referred for a criminal investigation and, while it took a few years, lawyer Janice eventually was convicted for collecting those fees, to which he was not entitled, all while doing little or no work for his clients. So, end of another story of lawyers behaving badly. No, it's not! Because in the course of the investigation, more bad behavior was discovered. What would you do if you found yourself suspended from practice, your marriage in trouble, but also with a propensity for messing up? In particular, what if your tastes ran to lots of online porn, expensive outings to strip clubs, and spending money on your girlfriends, who by definition are not your wife? Where are you going to get the cash for that? 
I've got a great idea, the same idea that lawyer Janice came up with. You know how credit card companies are always sending out solicitations for you to become a credit card customer? With a nice high credit limit so you can have the lifestyle that you deserve. Well, you just go get you some of those solicitations and fill them out in someone else's name. Yes, enjoy your increased purchasing power without all those pesky bills to pay. Charge it to someone else. Savings of 100%. Well, since we were talking about technical legal terms for this, we could call it credit card fraud or forgery for signing someone else's name on the slips theft by deception, or even identity theft. Yes, that's right. And that's what led lawyer Janice to the happy day of getting a chance to appear in court again after all those years under suspension. But unfortunately, not as a lawyer, but as a defendant. In February of 2021, Janice pled guilty to 31 counts of identity theft, forgery, and the like. Wow, something tells me that that suspension from practice will be permanent. And when lawyer Janice shows up for sentencing, he should probably bring along his toothbrush. Well, lawyer Janice was indeed messing up. In fact, through repeated stealing, lying, and greed, Janice produced a great big multi-layered steaming pile of messing up added to year upon year. There's almost no way you could imagine this getting any worse, right? Right? Oh, I don't know. What if lawyer Janice had opened those credit card accounts for porn, strip clubs, and girlfriends in the name of his wife? What if $80,000 of bills for strip clubs and porn and girlfriends went to his wife's credit report. And what if $5,000 of this activity was charged in the name of his mother-in-law? Oh yes, he did. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is another steaming pile of lawyers behaving badly. And that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal legal system? Go to the Ask Dave tab on our website and see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Call 412-407-3389. Again, that's 412-407-3389. Remember, we are a listener-supported program. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Again, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Since George Floyd's death, countless advocates, government officials, task forces, and commissions have made demands and proposals for police reform. But one reform advocate took a novel approach. She went inside the police organization and joined up. Police reform seasoned with an insider's view. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts on your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>